we come to the final blessings of the tribes in Moses' death. Chapter 32, verse 48. Then Yahweh said to Moses that same day, Go up to Abaram, hill country, to Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab opposite Jericho. And look at the land of Canaan that I am giving to the Israelites as a possession. You will die on the mountain that you ascend and join your deceased ancestors, just as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and joined his deceased ancestors. For both of you rebelled against me among the Israelites at the water of Meribah, Kadesh, and the desert of Zin. And when you did not show me proper respect among the Israelites, you will see the land before you, but you will not enter the land that I am giving you in the Israelites. So once again, you need to remember the whole reason that Moses is not going to the land is because he disobeyed God. The judgment for every prophet who disobeys God, whether in word or deed, is death all the time. little side note. You need to really understand that. So every single time a prophet completely disobeys God, either saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing, God immediately kills them over and over and over again. All, especially when we get the same young king, it's death, 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 death. Jesus comes along, and he is a prophet. Everybody knows that he's a prophet. And one of the famous scenes with the paralytic coming through the roof, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And in case you don't know what that means, the Pharisees let you know. Only God can forgive sins. You just claim to be God. Now, if Moses was killed by God for striking a rock instead of speaking to it, the man of God later in the book of Kings is told not to eat with anybody, and he does eat with somebody, and God kills him. If God kills you for little things like that, how much more do you think God is going to kill a prophet who says, I am God? And that's why Jesus says, which is easier to say, get up and walk, or your sins are forgiven? Now, technically, it's easier to say, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven than get up and walk, because I can't prove your sins are forgiven, but I have to prove get up and walk. But literally speaking, it's harder to say your sins are forgiven than to get up and walk because sins are forgiven requires a death on the cross. And so Jesus says, so that you may know that I am the Son of Man and I have the authority to forgive sins, I say to you, get up and walk. I'm going to do a miracle so you can physically see something that only God can do to show that the visible thing happened as well. Now, what is Jesus really saying there? If I am a prophet of God, which I am, and I just claim to be God and I'm not, then not only is there no way that I'm going to be able to do miracles through the power of God, but God's going to kill me. So that you may know that I do have the authority to forgive sins, not only will I not die, but I'll make this guy walk through the power of God. And I'm going to do it every single day for the next three and a half years. That is what Jesus is really saying in his ministry. And you don't get that if you don't understand what God does to prophets who disobey him. And every Pharisee knows that God kills prophets who disobey him. So now every Pharisee has got to deal with this guy for four and a half years who's claiming to be God and not only does not die, but keeps doing miraculous things like raising people from the dead that only God can do. And they choose to ignore it. And that's why it's significant for you to understand the long run to come to Jesus, because that becomes a huge testimony to who Jesus is. 
And so God says, you disobey me, now you will die. Because there is no blessing outside the land. So he's not allowed in the land. But at the same time, in the mercy and the love of God, he still allows Moses to see the land. He still allows him to see it. He could have just killed him down the valley. But he allows him to go up in the mountain, and he allows him to at least see the land. Because God is merciful. Chapter 33, verse 1. This is the blessing Moses, the man of God, pronounced upon the Israelites before his death. Yahweh came from Mount Sinai, and he revealed himself to Israel from Seir. It's in the region of Mount Sinai, down in Edom. He appeared in splendor from Mount Paran and came forth with 10,000 holy ones. So here we're told, see in the book of Exodus you're told that God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai and gave him the law. Here you're told that God didn't just appear on the mountain, a myriad of angels also came with him. And so a whole bunch of angels surrounded Yahweh and Moses on Mount Sinai. And in Exodus it feels like it's just Moses and God. But Deuteronomy, Moses is saying, actually, I wasn't alone with God. It was actually like thousands upon thousands of angels up there too with us. Now, that would have been incredible. Then when you get to Galatians chapter 3 and Acts chapter 7, you're not only told where there are a bunch of angels, but we're told that the law was given through angels. So God actually didn't directly give the law to Moses. He gave it to the angels who gave it to Moses because Moses can't come in the presence of God because he's a sinner. And this is the argument that the author of Hebrews is going to make in chapter 2, that the law was given through angels to Moses, but this new covenant was given to us through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then how much better is our covenant than the law? Because the law was given through angels, but the new covenant was given through God's Son. And if Jesus is superior to the angels, then the covenant that he's made is superior to the law. And so this passage is key to understand why the author of Hebrews can say the new covenant through Christ is superior to the Mosaic covenant through the angels and Moses. He came forth 10,000 with his right hand. Right hand is the hand of his salvation and judgment. It's often described as a double-edged sword. With one edge, he destroys people in judgment, and the other, he delivers and redeems people. And you see that in Isaiah 63 fiery law within them. Surely he loves the people. All you holy ones, angels, are in your power, and you, they sit, sit at your feet, each receiving your words. Moses delivered us to a law, an inheritance for the assembly of Jacob, and Yahweh was king over Jeshron, the righteous nation, when the leaders of the people assembled the tribes of Israel together. Now, once again, he reminds them, I am the one that rules over you, Jeshron, not the other people. Now he gives the blessings. So in these first five verses, he says, first, the deliverance of Israel from Egypt was their exodus. He emphasizes that. And then he emphasizes the giving of law. So he reminds them, I'm the one that delivered you, and I'm the one that gave you the law. Now, here are your blessings. So he's going to go through the 12 tribes. Most of these are very, very, very brief. He says in verse 6, May Reuben live and not die, and may my people multiply. That's it. That's what he says to Reuben. Just Reuben will never die. That's it. Now, Reuben doesn't get any blessings because remember back in Genesis, Reuben slept with his father's concubine trying to take the headship by force. And he lost the blessing in chapter 49. So Moses continues that. 
Verse 7, this is the blessing to Judah. He said, listen, O Yahweh, to Judah's voice and bring him to his people. May his power be great and may you help him against his foes. So to Judah, he promises him to be great and says, you will be the leader of nations. Then of Levi, he said, your Thuman and Urim belong to you, godly one, whose authority you would challenge at Massah and with whom you argued at the waters of Meribah. So he basically says the, the Thuman and the Urim are the priestly communication device with God. So he says, because you stood next to me, Levi, you will have the priesthood, which we already know that. A lot of these are just re-emphasizing. Now notice he left out Simeon. And the reason he left out Simeon is Simeon and Levi both killed the Shechemites under the Abrahamic covenant, and they both lost the blessing. Levi regained the blessing by standing next to God at the golden calf. Simeon didn't stand next to God, and Simeon brought the Moabite prostitutes at the end of Numbers into the camp. And so Simeon is gone, cut out. Now Simeon will never be wiped off the face of the earth, but they are become scattered throughout the lands. And so then he goes through all these different tribes, and he basically just promises a lot of these tribes like great crops, um, success in sailing and fishing and ports and that kind of stuff. And because most of these tribes are never really ever specifically mentioned again throughout the rest of the Bible, we don't know exactly how these things fulfilled. So mostly he's just blessing them. And then verse 13, it says of Joseph, he said, May Yahweh bless his land and his harvest produced by the sky, by the dew, and by the depths of the crouching beneath, with the harvest produced by daylight and by the moonlight, and with the best of the ancient mountains, and the harvest produced by the age of old hills, and with the harvest of the earth is fullness, and the pleasure of him who resides in the burning bush. May blessing rest on Joseph's head, and the top of the head of one set apart from his brothers. May the firstborn of his bowl bring him honor. May his horns be those of the wild ox, and them with them may he gore all peoples. All far reaches the earth. They are ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are thousands of Manasseh. And so Joseph, he gives him a long blessing. Because remember, Joseph got the double land inheritance back in Genesis. And so Judah got the firstborn title, the leadership one, and Joseph got the double land inheritance. And so his lung, and notice how many times he says, may you have great harvest at night, daytime, in the valleys, in the hills, everywhere. Because Moses was the one who brought the great harvest for his brothers in order to keep them alive. And so God says, because you brought the harvest for your brothers to keep them alive, I'm going to give you a great harvest in all your days. And then he ends up with Ephraim and Nassau, because Ephraim and Nassau were the two sons of Joseph, who then he elevated to the same status as all the other tribes. If you want a discussion on the 12 tribes of Israel, then go back to Genesis chapter 49 and my notes in the audio, and I spent a long time talking about how all those tribes work, because remember, technically, there are 13 tribes. A baker's dozen. So then he goes through the last of the tribes, and once again, these are just very minor blessings that he's giving to them in order to emphasize what they will be. And the main point is that these blessings are far briefer than the ones in Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, they're more detailed and more elaborate. And the reason they're not as detailed in Deuteronomy is because they already have their blessings. The point of Deuteronomy's blessing of the 12 tribes is not to give them a blessing that they've never gotten. They already have received it by Jacob. The point is to remind them of the blessings and that God will honor it. 
And what God is saying is after all these hundreds of years since Jacob, now that you're actually standing on the border of the promised land, I am not giving you blessings. I'm reminding you of the blessings you already have and telling you today is the day that these will come true. So Genesis 49 is the blessings. Deuteronomy 33 is like watching the trailer to a movie that you already watch. It's a reminder of the blessings. And then he ends in verse 26. There is no one like God, O Jeshron, who rides through the sky to help you on the clouds in majesty. So there is no one like the God who rides the clouds to come to your rescue. The everlasting God is a refuge, and underneath you are his eternal arms. He has driven out enemies before you, and he has said, destroy. Now, this is a beautiful image, because remember, over and over and over again, when he's referring to Jeshron, he's invoking the imagery of a father with his child. And Jeshron is this term of endearment and affection for his child. And then he says, for his eternal arms are under you. And that image is of a father holding a little baby. And that little baby has no idea what is under it. It has no idea that if that father lets go, that baby is going to smash to the ground and die. And that baby is completely unaware of how real the danger is. And that baby has no thought of fear because all it knows is the father's arms are secure. And if that's true of a human father, then how much of the eternal father? And so what he's saying is that my arms are eternal. They will never grow tired. They will always be there. And I am the only thing that's holding you up like a father holds its baby up. Jeshron. This is affectionate terminology. How in the world did the Jews miss that image of God? And that they had the audacity to judge Christ for invoking that imagery again. And that's the imagery he's evoking. I am your father who loves you. And I'm the one that holds you like a baby. And I'm the only thing between you and death. And you're completely oblivious to how real this danger is because you're an infant. Verse 28, Israel lives in safety. The fountain of Jacob is quite secure and a land of grain and new wine. Indeed, its heavens rain down dew. Grain and wine. Grain represents life and wine represents the abundance of life and joy. So what God is saying is I will give you abundance of life and joy. You have joy, Israel. Who is like you? You are a people delivered by Yahweh, your protective shield and your exalted sword. May your enemies cringe before you. May you trample on their backs. There is no nation like you, Israel, who was adopted and loved and redeemed by a God that nobody else has like a rock. You have a shield and a sword that will cause everybody to tremble Because like he said to Moses in Genesis chapter 14, I am your shield. Then Moses ascended from the deserts of Moab and Mount Nebo to the summit of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And Yahweh showed him the whole land, Gilead to Dan, and all of Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and the land of Judah, as far as the distant sea, and the Negev and the plain of the valley of Jericho, and the city of the date palm trees, and as far as Zoar, 
Then Yahweh said to him, This is the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When I said, I will give it to your descendants, I have let you see it, but you will not cross over there. So Moses, the servant of Yahweh, died there in the land of Moab, as Yahweh had said. And he buried him in the land of Moab. Who buried Moses? God did. And when you get to Jude, you find out that he had to be secreted away. But that's a whole other story. He buried in the land of Moab near the Beth Peor, but no one knows his exact burial place to this very day. Moses was 120 years old when he died, but his eye was not dull, nor had his vitality departed. The Israelites mourned for Moses in the desert of Moab for 30 days, then the days of mourning for Moses ended. Now the point that he's making there with his eyes were not dull is meaning his mind was still sharp. And his energy was still strong. And the point is twofold. One, that even to the very point of Moses' death, he was still a very capable leader over the people. And that's very important to understand to say that these words that he wrote are good. This isn't some old man or woman with dementia who's losing their awareness and like giving a last will to his children. And you're like, oh, some of that stuff kind of sounded weird, and they went back in here, and they're like, what do we do with that last thing? This is a sharp-minded man. Therefore, the book of Deuteronomy truly came from God. But the other thing it's also emphasizing is this. He's dying not because of old age and natural causes. It's judgment from God. He could have lived a lot longer, but his sin is what killed him. And that even though Moses is saying to the people, you know, eventually you're going to fail and you're going to become wicked and the law is going to kill you because of your sin. God is also trying to make the point. See, it's easy to condemn the people, but God is also making the point, even the greatest prophet that has ever lived and knew God better than anybody else and was given more authority and responsibility than everybody else, the law even killed him because he sinned. And that should be a reminder, like, if you think that obedience to the law is what's going to save you, then you have seriously missed the point of Moses' life. The greatest prophet that ever lived, the law even killed him. Now that becomes very important, because remember, this ends with the hope that another prophet like Moses will come. And so, when Jesus comes along, and he's in the wilderness... The devil comes along and says, you can't trust God. He's letting you starve. You're capable of making your own food. So make your own food and take care of your own needs. And that reminds you of the Garden of Eden. You can't trust God. He's keeping knowledge from you. But it's right there. You're capable of taking it. He even told you you could take it. So take matters in your own hands and take it. And the fact that Jesus responds, he quotes what book? Deuteronomy. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. That comes from chapter 2, where Moses says, God was providing for you more than just bread in the wilderness. He was providing that. Now, what does that remind tell you? Jesus is now the better Adam. He didn't fail in the garden like Adam did. Then the devil says, oh, you can quote scripture. I can too. Psalm 90. 
God says that he won't even let, he'll protect his son of God to the point that he won't let anything bad happen and the angels will come and keep him from striking his foot. So if you think God loves you and protects you and he's not doing a great job of it, prove it to me. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now what's the context of that? Moses in chapter 2 is saying, your parents put God to the test on a daily basis. And they kept accusing him of being a bad God and unfaithful. And they kept testing him and they died in the wilderness. Now you, the next generation going to the promised land, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Remember what happened to your parents. So the context is Israel in the wilderness testing God. Where is Jesus right now in this temptation? In the wilderness. And the devil wants him to test God. And does Jesus test God? So now what does that tell you? Jesus is the better Israel. And then he says, bow down to me and all the kingdoms of the earth I'll give you. And every single king that will go through in Samuel and Kings, they always sold themselves out and became just like all the other nations for power and money. And the devil's saying, sell yourself out and become a king like everybody else for power and money. And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God only. Quoting Deuteronomy, which shows that he's a better king and a better prophet. And the whole point of that temptation is that you have three categories of people. Adam, Israel, and the kings and prophets. And they all fail. Even Moses, the greatest prophet. And Jesus presented with the same exact test as all three of those categories. And he doesn't fail. And the point is this. Even the greatest prophet that has ever lived, the law killed him because of sin. And if Jesus goes through the temptation and is the better Adam, the better Israel, and the better king prophet, then there is something totally different about him. And that now, when you get through the whole book, it is depressing. Everybody fails. Everybody fails. Everybody fails. And you get to the Jesus story and you think, he's going to fail because everybody does. And all of a sudden he does it, and now all of a sudden you're paying attention. And that's the whole point. That's the whole point is to show you that this isn't another Moses. Because here's the cool thing about prophecy. The prophecy kind of foreshadows Jesus, but when Jesus comes along, he becomes so much bigger and better than the prophecies ever could talk about that he even leaves the prophecies behind. And you don't even think about Jesus fulfilling the prophecies anymore because he's so much bigger and better than all the prophecies. You were just expecting another prophet like Moses. And he blows it out of the water and says, I'm not just like Moses. I'm perfect. And the law is not going to kill me. Except I'm going to let the law kill me for your sake. I'm going to let the law kill me for your sake. And so even Moses is going to die to the law, which emphasizes the greatness of Jesus. This is why Hebrews in chapter 3 will say, Jesus is superior to Moses. Therefore, his covenant is superior to Moses' covenant. Verse 8, The Israelites mourned for Moses in the desert of Moab for 30 days. Then the days of mourning for Moses ended. That shows you how great he was too. 30 days of mourning means everything stands still. 
here's the transition. Now Joseph's son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had placed his hands on him, and the Israelites listened to him and did just what Yahweh had commanded Moses. So here he's making it very clear that the spirit that was upon Moses is now upon Joshua. He is the leader that they're supposed to follow. No prophet ever again arose in Israel like Moses, who knew Yahweh face to face. He did all the signs and wonders that Yahweh had sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all the servants and the whole land, and he displayed great power and awesome might in view of all of Israel. Now here's the thing. Like every single book, they end on a positive and a negative note. And the positive note is this. The positive is always the minor note. The negative is always the major. And so Deuteronomy ends on this positive note that they are on the border of the land and they're about ready to enter. They have had this great leader like Moses that no one else has been like Moses ever. And the people are really obedient. They're going to be the most faithful generation that Israel's ever seen. But the negative note is, you've already been told that they're going to eventually fail. And even the greatest prophet was killed by the law. And so Deuteronomy is a transition between the old chapter of the Torah and the new chapter of the Deuteronomic history. It's the old chapter of the promises of God going into the new chapter of the fulfillment of God's promises. And where everything seems really great, like we now finally have our house in the big backyard that we've always wanted, and, but there's still this undercurrent negative theme. And every book ends like that, with this negative note, until you get to the Gospels. Those are the only books that end on a positive note. And so this then launches into the next chapter of Joshua taking the promised land. So in conclusion, Yahweh revealed his power and love by delivering and redeeming Israel, his chosen people. Despite their idolatry in Egypt, he then adopted them as his people and showed them the way to him through the law, the tabernacle, and the sacrificial system. However, they continually rebelled against him. Yet in that rebellion, Yahweh revealed his long-suffering mercy by his continual forgiveness of their sins and restoring them back to himself. After the first generation failed to trust Yahweh and take the promised land, Yahweh brought the second generation to the promised land in fulfillment of his promises. Deuteronomy calls Israel to remember all of this and follow Yahweh presently in the future. You are to remember the faithfulness of God in judgment and the faithfulness of God and blessings, so that you will choose rightly when it comes to life and death being presented before you. The greatest message of the Bible is that Yahweh is a covenantal God who wants to have a relationship with humans and bless them despite their sin and rebellion. This is most clearly communicated in the First Testament in the book of Deuteronomy. The main message is that Yahweh is motivated by his love to deliver Israel from bondage, blessed them, and was faithful to them, even though they were unfaithful and rebelled against him. Yahweh urged Israel to follow and obey him because of their love for him, as well as for who he is and what he has done and would do for them. If they follow and obey them, they could experience an intimate relationship. So the most clearest place that we see God as a covenantal leader is that where he says, 
I am the God that was faithful to you. Now love me because I loved you. And the second place that we see this is where God calls us to remember. Remember, remember, remember all this so you don't fall away. Deuteronomy ends with Israel in the plains of Moab, ready to enter the promised land north of the Dead Sea. Deuteronomy is followed by the book of Joshua, which records Israel's entrance in the promised land and how they experienced more success because they applied Moses' teachings in Deuteronomy. That is why they will become the most successful generation ever because they're going to really catch that idea that God wants love, not behavior. And they're going to respond with that and they're going to become incredibly faithful because they also remember what their parents failed. This shows that despite Israel's disobedience in the wilderness, they were not able to hinder the will of Yahweh, only postpone it. And the end he brought them the promised land, and they entered just as he said they would. And this is what you must understand. Nothing can stop the word of God. All throughout the Bible, that's the continual message. You may miss out on the promises of God because of your disobedience. And we may postpone the promises of God because of our disobedience. But no matter what, God will fulfill his promises. And you're going to see that over and over and over again, individuals can miss out and corporately we can delay them. But always God will be faithful to his promises and he will bless the world like he promised he would. The question that you now have to make is, what rock are you going to trust in? And will you choose life over death? Now the beauty is that unlike them, we have the Spirit living in us. But it's your choice of how much of the Spirit you want to experience. So I know there are parts of Deuteronomy that felt long, but hopefully you've gained a better appreciation for the beauty of this book in the heart of God. And if you can get that, that will help you so much understanding all the books that are yet to come. Yahweh, we praise you so much for being a God unlike any other God, a rock like any other God. We thank you that you are a God that is sovereignly over all of us, creator over all of us, a God that expects certain things of us, and you will hold us to those expectations. I pray that we can remember the disobedience and rebellion of that generation so that we will not experience the same judgments. But we also thank you that you are an intimate God that we can call Father and Abba, and that you choose and want to have a relationship with us and allow us to rest in your arms, your everlasting arms, and really, truly dwell in you and know you so that we do not obey out of fear. We do not obey because we're expected to, but we obey because we love you. And we can't think of any other way to say I love you back than to obey you. And we thank you so much that now through Jesus Christ, we have been adopted into these covenant people of Israel and that you call us Jeshron as well. I pray that we would really truly embrace who you are as our God and creator and as our father. In Jesus' name, amen.